Father in heaven, thank you for this chance to be here in your presence. Thank you that you have promised that you are right here in this place because there are more than two or three of us gathered together and we're here in your name and you've promised in Matthew 18 that you are right here in the midst of us. Lord, forgive us for so often missing that beautiful fact. Thank you for being here right now. We ask that our hearts would be open, that our our minds would be fixed on you, that, that you would become everything to us this morning. Lord, right now we just open our hearts. We invite you to speak to us through the power of your word. We ask that Jesus would be lifted up in this place and that you would draw us into a closer, more intimate walk with you than ever before. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It had been a really long journey. They had been traveling for weeks. They finally arrived at what I guess they decided was their destination. And when they had left, they had no idea what their destination was really going to be. Even the leader of the group didn't really know. But when they got there, he kind of made it evident that they should set up camp there. And everybody began to set up camp. And and people were pitching their tents and they were doing things. And all of a sudden, they noticed something. Now, the leader of this group was... 75 years old. And you know, at that age, there's still a lot of strength left, aren't, isn't there? For those of you that are 75 years old. But sometimes we're surprised when we see 75-year-olds doing stuff that we would expect the, the 30-year-olds to be doing. And I imagine that this might have been what happened. Maybe there was some whispering in the camp as, as suddenly they're pitching their tents and all of a sudden they look out and, and here is this man, and he's going out, and he begins to grab these big rocks. And he's picking up these rocks, and all of a sudden, he's, he's walking over into camp with these huge rocks, and he takes these rocks, puts the rock down. He walks back out, and he's looking with purpose. What is he doing? Where, what is he up to? He goes around, and he finds another rock, grabs a huge rock, coming back over, Sets it there, carefully next to the other one. Time goes by. You imagine how much work this would take as he, he begins to, to fashion this, this square of rocks there. Now, you wonder what he's doing carrying these rocks. And it sounds kind of crazy, but this is actually something that is done when people are in training. Do you know that? It's actually something, there are... NBA basketball stars who do this, and they actually take it to a whole nother level. They do it underwater. They learned it from big wave surfers. I'm going to put an image up here on the screen. Here you see uh, this guy. He has a, a large rock that he dives down, and they call it r- underwater rock running. Okay, so they'll, they'll, in the water, they dive down, and they'll grab a big rock, and they will pick it up, And they will run as long as they can hold their breath underwater. How many of you does that sound fun to? I see Steve's hand going up. I kind of think it would be fun too. I've actually tried it. 
Uh, I don't think I got a rock that big, but it is kind of fun, but it is quite hard. Now, the big wave surfers actually started doing this because it enables you to be able to exert yourself physically without oxygen. Now, for a big wave surfer, this is really important. I'll put another picture up here of what takes place when a big wave surfer wipes out on a big wave. You see how this guy is being pummeled by this wave. They get pushed underwater, and they need to, at that point, be able to hold their breath while they're like in a washing machine. And it's, it's, it's an intense pressure. There's, there's all kinds of just water pushing them around. They need to be able to hold their breath. They need to be able to endure this intense situation that your body was really not made for. And they have to hold their breath sometimes a minute and a half if they're in this a huge wave, like you'll, you'll, you'll see some of them in the toe-in surfing. In order to practice for that, sometimes they'll actually get their own breathing up to where they can hold their breath for five minutes when they're not in a stressful situation. So they need to train, and one of the ways that some of these guys do this is by picking up a big rock on the bottom of the ocean floor and running with it until they run out of breath, and then they'll set it back down and go up, get some air, come back down, grab another rock, and they'll run with it. And you noticed in that picture that there was two of them doing it together. Sometimes they'll, they'll hang on to each other's shoulders so that it's a, uh, even more resistance as they're running through the water. This man was in training. He was grabbing rocks and he was building this square. And he, as he built it up, he was doing it with a purpose because he knew that he needed to build strength in his life. He needed to be ready for when the waves of life crashed down around him. That he would be able to handle whatever situation he came up against. He needed to build his strength. Go with me to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God shows up to Abraham. And at this time his name is Abram. And he tells him that I want you to take your family And I want you to leave your father's house and I want you to go to a land which I will show you. He doesn't tell him where. doesn't tell him what it's going to be like. He doesn't promise him that there's going to be anything special there. But he tells him, I'm going to give you this land. So verse 4 says, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. And Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. After that long journey, when finally they arrive in the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. He built an altar. He he built an altar there to worship that God who had appeared to him, that God who had promised him so many blessings. Earlier on, he'd promised that in you, all of the families of the entire earth are going to be blessed. And so he builds this altar to worship that God. But before long, you continue reading, verse 8, it says, And he moved 
from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there, what did he do? He built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. It's an incredible story as you read through the story of Abraham. Everywhere Abraham goes, as he goes and he pitches a new tent, or he pitches a new campsite, immediately what he does is he goes and he gathers these stones and he puts this altar together and he builds a place to worship God. Now, we learned last week that in Joshua's life, it was the small thing in his life of constantly spending time in the presence of God personally that built his strength to be able to stand there on that ridge and say, sun, stand still, and moon, stand still, and it happened for 24 hours. That he was only ready to pray that kind of prayer because he had spent time building that relationship with God. And if you missed last week or any of the messages, they're all there on the website under the Closer Walk series. But with Abraham, we find a different emphasis. Abraham, we do find him having a lot of personal time with God. But Abraham points out an entirely new element to us. And that is that Abraham wanted to build a place of worship, a place where Christ could be lifted up so that he could gather people together to worship. And we know at this point that there were probably at least 300 people that were there with Abraham. And eventually there's over a thousand in the camp with Abraham. And so each time his priority was to teach the entire camp that here is this altar. And on that altar he would offer that pure, spotless, blemishless lamb which represented Christ. So in building this altar, he's wanting to point his entire camp to Jesus. He wants them to have a place to worship Jesus together. He wants them to all come together on a consistent basis to worship Jesus. And we know when we get to Exodus that we find that there were morning and evening sacrifices. In Leviticus it outlines this. And we believe that that probably started back in the days of Abraham that consistently they would morning and evening gather around that altar to focus their attention on Jesus. So what difference did this make in Abraham's life? You think about who came with him, who he brought with him. You remember at this point, he's promised descendants, but he doesn't even know that he's going to have a child. He hasn't had a child yet, even though he's 75 years old. He has brought his brother's son with him, his nephew named Lot. And he is bringing this opportunity for Lot to worship Jesus together with him. Look at what takes place in chapter 13. In chapter 13, their possessions have expanded because just like the Israelites went down to Egypt and came back with a lot of possessions out of Egypt, Abraham went down to Egypt and came back out with a lot of possessions. And in, verse, in chapter 13, he comes back to that altar that we just read about in verse 4, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. He prioritizes coming back to the altar. You see, if you were to go to the land of Canaan at this time, you would have found scattered here and there 
altars that Abraham had erected as places where people could come together and focus on Jesus. And he found that altar and they came back and they pitched the camp there by that altar. And verse 5 continues, Lot also who went with Abram and had flocks and herds and tents. Lot, his nephew, is getting a little more wealthy. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of his nephew Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwell in the land. There's conflict going on. There's conflict going on between two groups of people who are used to going to the altar, who are used to worshiping Christ together, who are used to focusing on the lamb that is slain together. And yet conflict is coming in among them. So how does this leader handle this? Abraham, who is the older one, the one who has the authority in this situation. It continues in verse 8, So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. For we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. If you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. How noble is that offer? You think about it. Here Abraham is. He's been promised all of the land. He's brought Lot with him. And, and there's strife between their herdsmen. And at this point he could say, look, Lot, I brought you with me, but now it's time for you to get out of here. This is my land. God promised it to me. I have the promise of God. I have rights here. This is where I belong. And you can go somewhere else. Sometimes self rises up in us and we begin to assert our rights and our authority in a situation like that. But Abraham had built strength in his life. He had been in training by constantly worshiping the the slain lamb. By constantly focusing on the lamb that was to come. Focusing on Jesus. And so in verse 10, when Lot lifts his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, we know what it's like to be in a drought. We know what it's like to not have enough water, that our farmers are concerned about whether we have enough water to keep our farms going. As Lot looks around, he says, well, that's the good place over there. There's plenty of water over there. I am going to go that direction, like the Garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. How would you feel, honestly, at this point in time? If you had just offered your nephew this great opportunity and he had purposefully seized the very best for himself and just basically walked all over you. How do you treat somebody when they totally mistreat you? What should be our response? Should Abraham at this point have said, no, 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 hang on. I actually have more people, I have more herds, and it's my right, this is my land, God promised it to me, and so I am going to assert my authority here. He could have done that. 
But Abraham had built strength into his life by coming together with others to worship Jesus. And because of that, we find Abraham just going the opposite direction and not even worrying about the hateful thing that Lot had just done to him. And then in chapter 14, here Abram has, has moved to uh, Mamre in verse 18 of, of chapter 13, and he built another altar there in Mamre. He's built altars all over the place, all over the land of Canaan. Here are these memorials of Christ, these memorials of the true God, these memorials that remind people to come together and worship the coming Savior. In chapter 14, all of a sudden, Abraham is faced with a new situation. One day, he's sitting by those trees in Mamre when all of a sudden, a man comes running up. And I imagine as this man comes running up, he may have been a bit bloodied. He probably looked extremely worn out. He was probably covered in sweat. And as he comes running up, panting into the camp, he said, I need to find Abraham. I need to find Abraham. And as he runs into the camp. Finally, he finds his way to Abram. And verse 12 tells us that he tells Abram that his brother's son Lot has been taken captive. All of his goods have been taken captive. All of his kids, his wife has been taken captive by these foreign kings who came in and attacked their territory. At that point in time, what would you be thinking if you're Abraham? <laughs> Wouldn't you want to, to say, well, God, it looks like they got what they deserved. I mean, he kind of turned his back on you, and I'm sorry that this happened to him. You see, this was a big army that had come and taken Lot captive. It was an, an army of five kings that had come together, and they had taken all of Sodom and Gomorrah captive, and they had run off with them. What is Abraham supposed to do about it? He could have even just said, well, I'm so sorry that this happened. I wish it hadn't have happened this way. But I don't know what I could do about it. Instead, Abram gathers together those 300 able-bodied men in his camp. And he immediately goes on a rescue mission. He'd been training for this. He'd been building altars throughout the land of Canaan. He'd been learning to rely upon God by taking time to worship God with his family. And so he was ready to act like Christ would act in that type of situation. He was ready to lay down his own life, to go into battle for his nephew Lot, who had mistreated him on a moment's notice. I want that kind of faith, don't you? I want that kind of Christ-like love, that, that love that's willing to lay down my life for those who might even be mistreating me. That is the attitude of Abraham. And God rewards it. As he goes, they divide up their camp and they go in and they attack and they're able to take Lot back and get all of the possessions back and they're able to bring it all back and the king of Sodom tries to give him all of the goods, but he, he, he is so gracious that he says, no, I don't want to be made rich from you. I want to rely upon God. And he gives all, all of the things back. Incredible story. And verse 14 gives us a little clue into 
what it was that led Abraham to do this. In verse 12, it, it told us that it was Abraham's brother's son that, that was taken captive. But, but when Abraham acts in verse 14, it says, Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he had spent time worshiping with Lot. He had drawn close to Lot. And even though Lot had chosen to go in his own direction and to turn his back on him, he still considered him as his own brother. And he was willing to lay down his life for him. But it gets even better than that. As you keep on reading in this story of Abraham, and I encourage you just to to take Genesis chapter 12 and just start reading it. Just start digesting the story of Abraham. There's so many insights here, so many stories. And maybe we'll get a chance to just go into this in a sermon series where we just focus on all these incredible stories of faith. But as we go on and we, we get to chapter 18, we find another story where Abraham is again sitting there and suddenly he's surprised as he sees Three men standing there, and Abraham again exhibits this habitual tenderness and kindness, this hospitality, this willingness to give to others, to do unto others as he would have others do unto him. And he immediately runs and begins to minister to their needs. And he invites them to come, and he he asks for, for his wife to be in fixing this extravagant meal for these strangers out in the middle of nowhere who just happened by his camp. And as he's visiting with these strangers, verse 16 tells us this, Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, you catch that? These aren't just strangers. When it says Lord, you notice how it has capital O-R-D? That's, we've taken in the English and we've taken the name Yahweh or Jehovah in the Hebrew, and we have put Lord in there in respect for those who don't believe that you should, should say that name in public. Jew, Jews usually don't want to, to speak that devout Jews. So here it says, the Lord, Yahweh, the, the God of the universe, is talking to Abraham. He was one of the three who Abraham had entertained. He speaks and he says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham surely be, uh, shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him. I know Abraham. We are friends. James 2.23 actually says that. Abraham is a friend of God. Just like we learned last week about Moses in Exodus chapter 33, that He spoke with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And Joshua, the young man, would not depart from the tent. Just like Moses was a friend of God, James chapter 2 and verse 23 says that Abraham was a friend of God. So here, he says, should I hide this from my, my friend Abraham? I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. He says, I know Abraham, and I know that he is going to command his kids, 
He's going to command his whole household. He doesn't even have kids yet, but he's already been directing them to worship me, to follow me, to live in obedience to me. He's already been directing them in this path. I know, Abraham, that this is the type of life that he's going to live. And when you read that and you see that it says, command his children, does that sound a little bit dictatorial to you? He's going to command his children, you need to go to church. Is that what he's saying here? He's going to command his children after him that they may uh, keep the way of the Lord. If you observe Abraham's life, he had built something in his relationships with others. When, When he has Isaac as his son, he had built something into their relationship that it all centered around Jesus from the very beginning. He was prioritizing worship by building that altar so that they could focus on Christ every single day. And Isaac grew up recognizing that that's the way life should be. That that was the good life. And he saw in Abraham that kindness, that goodness, And you can observe in Isaac's life that he appreciated it and he followed it, not because he was just forced into it, but when when Abraham tells him we're going to go sacrifice in the land of Moriah, Isaac goes with him and it was just like second nature for him. As they go, he says, well, where's where's the wood and where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And then Abraham has to break it to him that I'm supposed to sacrifice you on this altar. And though he's a 20-year-old by this time and could easily overpower his dad, he gets on the altar and lets his dad bind him to the altar and lets his dad raise that knife as if he's going to kill him. What kind of respect Isaac had for his father Abraham? Because he'd seen from the very beginning Abraham training his family for strength in Jesus. They'd been coming together to worship Jesus together. And later on, after Abraham dies, you find that that Isaac goes to some of these same places where altars had been built, and he there were also wells there, so he redigs the wells, and then it says that he repairs and rebuilds the altars. He saw the value of his father's religion in following Christ. He knew the difference that it had made in in Abraham's life. It wasn't just words. It wasn't just ceremonies. But it was a a living relationship. Abraham was actually a friend of God. And we see that in this story as it continues on. The Lord said in verse, verse 20, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Sometimes there will be people who point to Sodom and Gomorrah and just say, look at how God just wiped them out. God is a God of just voracious judgment. Notice that this is the second time in this story that God is doing everything possible to save the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's already sent Abraham before to rescue them when they were all taken captive. And now he's coming down to to let Abraham know, to, to let him know that this is what's coming upon Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Verse 22, Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Now in the Hebrew here, it's very interesting that, that it, it, it insinuates that it was actually the Lord who was standing there, who was remaining, who's kind of just waiting for Abraham to say something. He's staying there in Abraham's presence. He's continuing to stand there because he wants to have a further conversation with Abraham about this. And Abraham recognizes the goodness, the mercy of the Lord. Because he's spent time worshiping the one who was pointed to by the slain lamb. He recognizes the mercy of God. And Abraham begins to plead with his friend. He talks with the Lord. And, and he acknowledges the greatness of the Lord. He, he acknowledges that, you know, I'm just dust and I shouldn't really be asking you this. But he, he begins to plead on behalf of that city that was so full of corruption, that was so full of pride, that was so full of debauchery and persecuting people. He begins to plead and says, would you spare that city if there are just 50 righteous people in it? God says, okay, if if there are 50, I'll spare it. He's a God of mercy, a God of justice, a God who is not willing that any should be lost. God is exhibiting his love for Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is exhibiting his love for Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham thinks about it and, and, and again goes to his friend and begins to plead a little bit more and says, what about if there are 45 persons? Again and again he goes back, what if there are 30? What if there are 20? Finally, if, if there are just 10 people, will you save that city? He has the heart of Jesus for the city because he's become such close friends. He knows that the religion of worshiping Yahweh is about salvation. It's about the lamb that is going to come. He's going to be slain on an altar for all of the world. He's going to go to the cross so that all could have the opportunity of salvation. And Abraham seizes on the goodness of God, the mercy of God, because he knows it from personal experience, because he spent time worshiping the king with his family. There's power in going to the altar together. In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 144, talking about this story, it says, like the patriarchs of old, those who profess to love God should erect an altar to the Lord wherever they pitch their tent. If ever there was a time when every house should be a house of prayer, it is now. Fathers and mothers should often lift up their hearts to God in humble supplication for themselves and their children. In such a household, Jesus will love to tarry. Matthew 18 and verse 20 says that where two or three are gathered in my name, I am right there in the midst of them. When you come together to worship Jesus, Jesus comes into the midst by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want more of Jesus in my home. How about you? I want to experience more times worshiping, even with my own household. You know, we can point out that we have these kids and it's very important for them to be in our school and having this opportunity. It's very important for them to be here at church, having the opportunity in Sabbath school to worship Jesus. 
And we're so thankful for our school and how it directs our kids to Jesus. We're so thankful for our Sabbath schools that teach our kids about the Bible. But do you know that they've done studies on Seventh-day Adventist young people? And it's a value genesis study was done. You can go and you can look it up. Out of the three spheres of influence in a child's life, the church, the school, and the home, the most valuable thing to predict whether when that child grows up and becomes an adult, that he is radically in love with Jesus, that he's continuing to follow in Jesus in his life, if he's still engaged in his Seventh-day Adventist church, is based on whether that family has inspiring family worship. Do they get together? Do they gather around the altar? Do they make it a priority? It may take work. It took a lot of work for Abraham to build a gigantic altar everywhere that he went. It takes a lot of planning in order to facilitate worship on a daily basis. In order for him to gather together what eventually of his household became a thousand people to worship Jesus together. It took effort. It took forethought. It took planning. But Abraham knew that he needed to build that strength. And if he didn't build that strength, when the trials came, he wouldn't respond in a Christ-like way. But because that strength had been built, he was able to stand when the trials came. He was able to handle the wave of life when it crashed all around him. He was able to keep his eyes fixed on Jesus because he'd gone to the altar every day. Friends, for our households, it's essential that we take them to Jesus every day. That we have inspiring, uplifting, fun worship of Jesus every day. And in the study guide, there's an article in there on the back of the study guide that gives you some ideas for family worship, for how to make it a really special thing, a really fun thing, a really simple thing. Gives you different resources and ideas. But don't neglect to drive your family to Jesus every day. And for a long time, I thought, well, yeah, someday when I have kids, then then I'm going to have worship. But remember that Abraham gathered He commanded not just his children, but his household. He brought Lot to that altar. He brought his servants to that altar. He brought everybody together. Anybody that was in his household, he brought together to worship Jesus. And I realized in my own life, I need corporate time in worship. Not just once a week, church is essential. That we come together and we worship Jesus in this place. Prayer meeting is an incredible opportunity where we can get together midweek and refresh and focus our minds on Jesus. But I need something every day. Not just for myself. I need to go like Joshua to the tent. But I also need time together with other people. I need time for my household. It's Leah and I. Over the past couple months especially, we've been spending extra time together in prayer every day. And I can't tell you how encouraging that has been to my walk with Jesus. How much closer I feel like I've been drawing to Jesus. I mean, we prayed together every day in the past, but we've been trying to dedicate at least an hour every morning to pray specifically for our church and for our church family. And I can't tell you what that does for my own heart, how it makes me to fall more in love with Jesus. The more time that you spend drawing together with your household to worship Jesus, the stronger you're going to grow. And you might be thinking, well, that's great. Great for the people that have, have people in their household. What about me? I don't even have anybody living with me. 
That doesn't mean you can't call somebody. It doesn't mean that you can't have a prayer partner. It doesn't mean Abraham could have said, well, I don't even have children yet, so I don't need to have this altar. But he called everybody possible to come with him to worship Jesus. Find a prayer partner. Find a spiritual friend. Find somebody that you can approach Jesus together with. There's power in worshiping Jesus together. In Testimonies to the Church, page 743, it says, In every family there should be a fixed time for morning and evening worship. That's volume 7 of Testimonies for the Church. In the Review and Herald, June 6, 1899, it says, One well-ordered, well-disciplined family. Now this is one that, that makes me think as a pastor tells more in behalf of Christianity than all the sermons that can be preached. That's how essential it is that as a family unit, we are worshiping Jesus together. It's more important than the sermons that are preached. It is the most valuable thing in our spiritual walk. First of all is to have that relationship one-on-one, but then to gather our family together and worship Jesus. And that has an impact on the people around us. It had an impact on the nations around as Abraham was there. It made an incredible difference. I've seen the difference that this can make in my own life. My parents at first were doing some worship with us when I was a kid, and my mom went through a deepening of her walk with Jesus when I was just a young boy. And suddenly our family worships changed from something that was just kind of a rigorous thing that we did to suddenly we began focusing on praising God. We focused on answers to prayer. We focused on the goodness of God. And things began to change in our family. And one specific day, my family had decided that they were going to invite the neighbors across the street to come over for dinner on a Friday night. They wanted to have, have some people come over just to, to make friendships with our neighbors. The wife ended up getting sick, and so it was just the dad who was a dentist and his his, uh, child that came over to our house. I was four years old at the time. The the moments were approaching for the, the meal, and my mom was busy in the kitchen preparing to get everything ready. And all of a sudden, it clicks in my dad's mind, what about family worship? They're going to get here right at the time when we need to have family worship. Right after dinner, we should get them together for family worship. So he goes into the kitchen and he begins to ask my mom. And my mom says, I don't have time to think about what we're going to do for family worship with our neighbors. You better go figure that out because I'm finishing the meal. Husbands, you know, sometimes you, you just need to help your wife with all she has going on in the kitchen and not bother her, Right? Because she's doing a good work. And you can go in and help her assist her. Whatever has to be done. Well, he realized that that wasn't the time to to interrogate her about the worship. So instead, he went into the living room and he grabbed me and he took me back to the bedroom. And in the bedroom, he began to plan family worship with me, a little four-year-old. And he begins to to go through different ideas of what we were going to do. I don't remember this story well. I'm going off of what they tell me happened. But... As he began to explain to me what we were going to do, he said, and then at the end of it, we're going to have a prayer. And Zach, I want for you to pray at the end of the worship. I said, okay, Daddy, I'll pray. And, and so then he said, okay, well, let's pray for our neighbors now. Okay, let's pray, Daddy. So my dad begins to pray. And my dad begins to say, Lord, 
we just really want to pray for our neighbors as they come tonight, Lord. We just pray you know that they're, they're not walking with you and that they need to know Jesus. And Lord, I just pray that, that they would come to church. I pray that they would see their need of Jesus in their life. And he, he begins to pray this prayer and he says amen and then they come over. We eat dinner together and then finally we're having the family worship. At the end of the family worship, the four-year-old Zach's opportunity comes to pray. And I begin to pray, oh Lord... You know that our neighbors don't know you. You know that they, they need to come to church. Lord, would you save our neighbors? They need to know Jesus. When I finally said amen, my mom said my dad was white as a sheet. He didn't know what to say. And the man and his child didn't really know what to say either, but they finally just said, okay, we're going to go now. And they walked out of the front door of our house. And we thought that was probably the last time we were ever going to see them. (laughs) But do you know, the next Sabbath, somebody showed up in church. God has a way of reaching hearts. He knows what our neighbors need. And our neighbors came to church that next Sabbath and they began to attend church. God knows how to take a family and through the family being a family focused on Jesus to draw others to Jesus. There's power when you come together as a family. When you come together with your spouse. In fact, it tells us there's a, there's a, a Gallup poll that's been done about marriages and one in two marriages, even Christian marriages, church-attending marriages, will end in divorce. But if a couple prays together every day, they have that worship together every single day, it's one in 1,153 marriages will end in divorce. That's good news if your marriage is on the rocks. There's hope for you. Begin spending time with Jesus together. Begin to build the altar. Begin to build strength into your marriage. It makes an incredible difference in your life when you worship Jesus together. It makes an incredible difference when we come together as a church to worship Jesus together. In Testimonies to Ministers, page 509, it says, We should improve every opportunity of placing ourselves in the channel of blessing. Christ has said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. The convocations of the church as in camp meetings, the assemblies of the home church, and all occasions where there is personal labor for souls are God's appointed opportunities for giving the early and the latter rain. When we come together, Jesus comes in our midst through the power of the Holy Spirit. So church is important. Prayer meeting is important. Our life groups are important. Your family worship is important. Your time in prayer with your spouse is important. Your time with your prayer partner is important. Follow the example of Abraham. I want to be a friend of God. I want to be able to say to God, God, would you save XYZ, whoever it is, if there's just... If there's just this opportunity, I want to have that closeness with God like Abraham did in pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah, that wicked city. He was a friend of God. He knew God because he built strength into his relationship with God. Friends, let's commit 
to worshiping Jesus together, to building altars all over this county, to building altars wherever you come from. If you come from Texas, build an altar in Texas. Wherever you are, build an altar to lift up the slain lamb who went to the cross for our sins. Lift him up for your own sake. Lift him up for your family's sake. Lift him up for your neighbor's sake. Lift him up so that the people around you can see Jesus. As we close, I just want to invite you, if you're able, to kneel with me in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the example of Abraham. Lord, we're here on our knees and we're admiring a great man of faith. A man who the the New Testament again and again exhorts as the example and we are to be children of Abraham. Father, we want to also command our households, our children, in the way of the Lord. We want to guide others to see the beauty, the wonder of Jesus. Lord, would you show us how to make intentional plans to build altars? Lord, not just in church service, but we pray that you'd give us a commitment this morning to be here in church. That you give us a commitment to be in prayer meetings. And that you would give each and every one of us a commitment to daily worship you together with others. Father, we're asking that you would lead us and guide us and direct us how to worship Jesus, to see Jesus lifted up in our lives so that we too can be people of strength who respond in love when any circumstance happens. Father, bless my friends as they go out to build altars to worship you, to be in this walk together. Bless them this week, I pray, in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen.